I know, I'm old school and I do the paper. I don't trust technology, but I trust a mask. Yeah, no worries. Hi, guys. I know it's funny because people will be like, oh, so Drew and Laura Fess. I'm like, yeah, nope, nope. Drew and Heather, Mike and Laura Fess. <laughs> this is, we have to differentiate between the, uh, the couples. Um, okay, so I'll just put this down while, while I get started. My name's Laura. Um, I think I've recognized most of you from the summer, but for those that are new, it's nice to see you again. Again, it's just your eyeballs. <laughs> um, I told you in the summer I really need, um, you know, working on my self-esteem. So happy eyes encourage me. I can't see your whole faces. I normally feed off of entire faces. Um, I'm aging rapidly because I have to really squint to show emotions at work. So if you could squint at me, thanks, Drew. Husband, <laughs> hubby. <laughs> if you could squint at me, that would be awesome. Um, so for my vocation, um, I work as, a, I'm a social worker and I work in mental health and because it's Thanksgiving, we're going super topical today. <laughs> we're taking a dive out of, you know, is church even important, which is a great series to, to do, um, into gratitude and gratefulness, because it's Thanksgiving, right? So at work, um, I don't know if any of you have ever done th uh, therapy or counseling yourself, but a big, you know, tool that comes up at one point or another is gratitude, you know, journaling gratitude and kind of keeping a tab on the things that are positive about life. And, uh, you know, people can think it's a pseudoscience, and a lot of it kind of is pseudoscience, but there is some science behind why we do things like that. Um, you may have heard uh, a term like manifestation. Do you have any friends that manifest? <laughs> yes. For those that don't know, you're like, this just took a turn into the sacrilegious so fast. <laughs> um, so, you know, I, you know, manifestation or vision boards, anyone? Have you, do you have people who are like, I put that yacht on my vision board, and you're like, what? But then they don't get a job. You're like, I don't think it's working. Um, you know, but manifestation, there is a real science behind why do we manifest um, and why do we have a vision board? Yeah, and as Christians, it's this funny, weird, bizarre thing where you're like, you know, what, where do we, what do we think about that stuff? So when it comes to gratefulness, a lot of us, depending on the season of life you're in, quite literally need to manifest some gratefulness this weekend. You need to open your mind's eye to what's happening. I don't know if any of you have families that you're meeting with, right? You're going to manifest a good experience there. Not my family, of course. They're all here. Um, <laughs> um, so the way that manifestation works is there's no fairies that make your dreams come true right, which actually is quite heartbreaking for some people because that's what they believe happens, that someone picks it up in the universe and makes it happen. How manifestation works is that our brains on a daily basis um, get rid of information all the time because it deems that information not appropriate. So I don't know if you've ever driven to work and you don't remember how you got there. And you're like, wow, that was scary. I do not remember the last 30 minutes. That's kind of a dissociation thing that happens. But the science between the two is very similar, is your brain is trying to drop information that is not important to focus on the things that your brain thinks is important. How many of you wish your brain thought other things were important? <laughs> like concentrating at work, studying for an exam. You're like, remember this information. So have you ever wanted to buy a Toyota that was red, and you just decided, yes, I'm thinking of that red Toyota. That's how much I know about cars. A Toyota Venza, okay? And you just decide. 
after you make that decision, like, I think this is what I want, have you ever had the experience of seeing red Toyota Venzas everywhere you go? And you're driving down the highway and you're like, oh my gosh, does everyone want the same car as me? Am I on trend, post trend? Like, I swear I've never seen them before and now they're everywhere. So that's manifestation, okay? It doesn't mean that all of a sudden fairies put that car everywhere. What it means is that you went through the process of telling your brain that something that was a non-thing before now is suddenly important. And so your brain starts storing information about that thing where in the past it was like, it's a red car, who cares? Who cares about more red cars? Or if you have ever wanted to, wanted to buy a fridge, this was my first like, experience with it myself. I need a fridge. Every single flyer that came to my house, I swear to you, on the front of all of them was refrigerators are on sale. I'm like, what? Does everyone need a fridge right now? What has happened to fridges? There's a conspiracy on fridge death and everyone needs one. Okay, so that, that's the idea behind manifestation. You set the priority in your brain that says, that may have been a non-thing in the past, but I now want it to be something that I see. So now that I've prioritized seeing it, all of a sudden, I see it. How that works with like getting your dream job is not that, poop, there goes your job. It's that it opens your mind up to opportunities in the past that you either would not see or would not have the energy to see or engage in, right? So it is hard if you're in, you know, have friends who are like, I just manifested that job. You're like, yeah, you didn't, but you did. <laughs> so that's the science behind it. So with gratefulness and gratitude and thanksgiving, you know, especially on a weekend like this in a post-pandemic world, <laughs> love the faith there, right? In a post-pandemic world, you know, for a lot of us, when we're in the middle of our lives, it can be hard to look up and see what is good that's around us. Thanksgiving can be a good marker because what it does is it's almost like its own manifestation kind of journal session where it's like, what are you grateful for? And you're like, shoot, nothing, something, my mom, turkey, you know, potatoes, is that the idea is that we put ourselves in a position where we are opening up our eyes, mind to see things that God is doing in our life. So does this have anything to do with the Bible? We're gonna, we're gonna make a stretch, okay? You're ready to stretch and find a biblical way to, okay. Drew's like, that's not a good intro. <laughs> okay, so this morning what we're gonna do is a story that if you ever grew up in Sunday school class, you probably heard it and still to this day are like, that was the most awkward thing ever. Um, and if you didn't grow up, you're gonna read it and you're gonna think to yourself, that is the most awkward story ever. It's the story of Rachel and Leah. Anyone remember it from the Bible? Yeah, Rachel is the beautiful, hot one that Jacob wants to marry. Leah is the unattractive one that he ends up, there's kids in the room, um, having a wedding ceremony with and then surprised that it was her. It's very interesting. Then it goes on and on into this dynamic of two sister-in-laws who marry the same man and start popping out kids. Okay, we're gonna read it, are you ready? Yeah, hold on, okay. Genesis 29, now I don't have it up on the screen, but if you are a visual person, you probably wanna bring your Bible out because it's gonna be long, because like where else do we read a whole chapter of the Bible than at church, right? Yeah, I'll give you a sec. Look it up, Genesis 29, it's like near the beginning if you have a paper one. Don't go too far. Good? Y'all are just quiet. Genesis 29, Rachel and Leah. Think if you ever did grow up in Sunday school about the felt board. And there's Rachel and there's Leah. It's the weirdest story ever. Okay, so verse one. 
Um, then Jacob went on his journey and came to the land of the people of the east. As he looked, he saw a well in the field, and behold, three flocks of sheep lying beside it. For out of that well the flocks were watered. The stone on the well's mouth was large, and when all the flocks were gathered there, the shepherds would roll the stone from the mouth of the well and water the sheep and put the stone back in its place over the mouth of the well. I love the Bible because that is literally like a how-to feed your sheep from a well. Like that is the Ikea manual for well sheeping or sheep welling, watering, right? You're like, that's useful information. Thank you. Okay, verse 4. Um, Jacob said to them, my brothers, where do you come from? They said, we are from, oh, by the way, if I butcher pronunciation, I didn't study Hebrew or any language, and I don't know how to pronounce things. So judge me as I judge myself. Heron, that's how I think we pronounce it, like Karen. He said, he said to them, do you know Laban, the son of Nahor? They said, we know him. And he said to them, is it well with him? They said, it is well. And see, Rachel, his daughter, is coming with the sheep. He said, behold, it is still high day. It's not time for the livestock to be gathered together. Water the sheep and go pasture them. Again, I have no idea what that means, but it sounds like something seriously was happening with the sheep. Verse 8, but they said, we cannot until all the flocks are gathered and together and the stone is rolled from the mouth of the well. Then we water the sheep. This has nothing to do with today's sermon. It's just, again, it's nuance. Um, while he was still speaking with them, Rachel came with their father's sheep, for she was the shepherdess. Feminism. Feminism in the post-Jesus world. Now, as soon as Jacob saw Rachel, the daughter of Laman, his mother's brother, and the sheep of Laban, his mother's brother, Jacob came near and rolled the stone from the well's mouth and watered the flock of Laban, his mother's brother. Then Jacob kissed Rachel. Escalation, guys. He just saw his cousin, watered her sheep, and kissed her. I think we're missing context, but, you know. And Jacob told Rachel that he was her father's kinsman and that he was Rebekah's son, and she ran and told her father. As soon as Laban heard the news about Jacob, his sister's son, he ran to meet him and embraced him and kissed him and brought him to his house. Jacob told Laban all these things, and Laban said to him, Surely you are bone of my flesh. And he stayed with him a month. Then Laban said to Jacob, Because you are my kinsman, should you therefore serve me for nothing? Tell me, what shall your wages be? Now, okay, this is where entered the sisters. Now Laban had two daughters. The name of the older was Leah, and the younger was Rachel. Leah's eyes were weak, which is like a really polite way of saying that she was hard to look at. She was ugly, okay? It's like the nice way of saying that. So if you ever are, you know, on Tinder and you need to swipe the other way, you can just say, eyes are weak, eyes are weak. Um, but <laughs> it's like kind, right? But Rachel was beautiful in form and appearance. Jacob loved Rachel. Um, which is also a really interesting sentence. It's one sentence, Jacob loved Rachel. It's interesting because love was not something um, that was part of the cultural like norm. Marriage was economical, right? It was a business transaction, and so for someone to be loved or to love, um, we think that's normal, and we're like, oh my gosh, love. Um, that wasn't the typical, right? Um, and he said, I will serve you seven years for your younger daughter, Rachel. Laban said, it is better that I give her to you than I should give her to any other man. Stay with me. Which is a funny, um, like if your father-in-law says, better you than anyone else, I guess. 
He's really impressed with Jacob, right? He's like, you can work seven years and you can have her. Which again, when you're a woman reading this is a little hard, but you know, um, marriage was economical. Um, and it, this kind of stuff I understand is cringy because it reinforces what we now experience as patriarchy, but that was a different context, if that makes sense. So don't buy your wife today, okay? So Jacob served seven years for Rachel, and they, and they seemed to him, unless it's a diamond, unless they seemed to him but a few days because of the love he had for her. Seven years flew because of his love. Then Jacob said to Laban, give me my wife that I may go <clears throat> into her, for my time is completed. So Laban gathered together all the people and the place and made a feast. But in the evening, he took his daughter Leah and brought her to Jacob, and he went into her. Laban gave his female servant Zilpah to his daughter Leah to be her servant. And in the morning, behold, it was Leah. Can you imagine that honeymoon? Do you ever just read the Bible and just skip over the awkwardness of this moment? I'm not going to go into detail because Levi, my sweet nephew, is in the room. But this is a funny dynamic. Does not even know that he married someone else. Jacob said to Laban, what is this that you've done to me? Did I not serve you for Rachel? Why would you have deceived me? Laban said, it's not so done in our country to give the younger before the firstborn. Complete the week with this one, and then we will give you the other, also in return for serving me another seven years. Jacob did so and completed her week. Then Laban gave him his daughter Rachel to be his wife. Laban gave his female servant Bilhah to his daughter Rachel to be her servant. This will all make profound sense at the end, okay? So Jacob went into Rachel also, and he loved Rachel more than Leah and served Laban for seven years. So now we're at chapter 31. So the summary of that first chapter is we have a whole dynamic of the economics of marriage and this very interesting thing that happened where someone loved someone and wanted to marry her. Where there was now two wives, one that was not loved or wanted by the husband who just happened to find herself in his honeymoon and another one that was loved and adored and wanted, right? Keeps going. Chapter 31. When the Lord saw that Leah was hated, he opened her womb, but Rachel was barren. Leah conceived and bore a son, and she called his name Reuben. For she said, because the Lord looked upon my affliction, now my husband will love me. The interesting thing about the name Reuben is that it actually is a Hebrew word that's a play on misery. So it would be like if I named my daughter Miserah, right, or Miseria. Um, the, the people of the time would have understood that this child was named Misery, okay? Really interesting about Hebrew naming of children is you're actually naming their destiny, like you're naming them their identity. Quite a name, <laughs> right? You're like, thanks, mom. You're talking about mom issues? <laughs> you're just like, my mother named me Misery, her Misery. Um, the naming of these children is actually going to be quite profound, so you don't have to keep track of them, but the reason I'm pausing on them is it's kind of cool what will happen at the end. Verse 33, she conceived again and bore a son, and she said, because the Lord heard that I'm hated, he will give me this son also, and she called him Simeon, which means God hears me. Now it's not God hears me, woohoo, it's God hears that I'm hated, okay? Again, she conceived and bore a son and said, now this time my husband will be attached to me, for I have borne three sons. Therefore, she named him Levi, which means, will he attach? And she conceived again and bore a son. Okay, now this is a very profound sentence. And she conceived again and bore a son and said, this time I will praise the Lord. And she called him Judah. 
We have no idea of the time frame between may he attach to me and this time I will praise the Lord. There's something really cool that happened with Leah. Then she ceased bearing children. When Rachel saw that she bore Jacob no children, she envied her sister, which is interesting because what Rachel had was everything that Leah actually wanted. Leah wanted to be loved. Rachel was loved, but envied her sister. This is where we see the jealousy and the competition begin between these two sisters. She said to Jacob, give me children or I shall die. Jacob's anger was kindled against Rachel, and he said, am I in the place of God who has withheld from you the fruit of the womb? Then he said, here is my servant, sorry, she said, here is my servant Bilhah, go into her so that she may give birth on my behalf, that even I may have children through her. So she gave him her servant Bilhah as a wife, and Jacob went into her, and Bilhah conceived and bore Jacob a son. Rachel, who got, gets to name the son because it's the you know, um, previous version of surrogacy, Rachel said, God has judged me and he's heard my voice and given me a son. Therefore, she named him Dan, and Dan means vindication. Okay? It's not thank you, it's vindication. Okay? It adds up at some point. <laughs> Rachel's son Bilhah conceived again and bore Jacob a second son. Then Rachel said, With the mighty wrestling, I have wrestled with my sister and I have prevailed. So she called his name Naphtali, which means my struggle. So again, this is not this, oh my goodness, after years of not having children, I'm now um, having children, and wow, look what's happening. It's vindication and my struggle. When Leah saw that she had ceased bearing children, she took her servant Zilpah and gave her to Jacob as his wife. Then Leah's servant Zilpah bore Jacob a son, and Leah said, wow, good fortune has come. So she called him Gad, which actually means a group is coming. She started to be able to see that there was something bigger that was happening and that God was continuing to create a family legacy even through Zilpah. Leah's servant Zilpah bore Jacob a second son and Leah said, happy am I for women have called me happy. People are now recognizing that Leah, whose first child was named Misery, now children later, this one's named Happy because people recognize something is happening with Leah. There's a happiness there, so she named him Asher, which means happy. Verse 14, and we, we're almost there, guys. In the days of the wheat harvest, Reuben went and found mandrakes in the field and brought them to his mother Leah. When Rachel said to Leah, please give me some of your son's mandrakes, but she said to her, is it a small matter that you have taken away my husband? Would you also, also take away my son's mandrakes? Rachel said, then he may lie with you tonight in exchange for your son's mandrakes. So what's happening here is actually a really awkward dynamic between sisters. Mandrakes were considered like an aphrodisiac and also like would help with conception. Um, and so not, oh, I know, <laughs> we're just going for it, guys. This is happy Thanksgiving. Um, so the fact that she's asking her sister for it would have con been considered a pretty dishonoring thing to do. But at the same time, what, what's interesting is that Rachel goes right into manipulation. You can have um, our husband tonight. I will let you have him if you give that to me. It's a very awkward thing, a dynamic. When Jacob came from the fields in the, in the evening, Leah went out to meet him and said, you must come into me for I've hired you with my son's mandrakes. Guys, marriage, whew. So he lay with her that night and God listened to Leah and she conceived and bore Jacob a fifth son. Leah said, God has given me my wages because I gave my servant to my husband. So she called his name Issachar, which means reward. 
Then Leah conceived again, and she bore Jacob a sixth son. Then Leah said, God has endowed me with good endowment. Now my husband will honor me. So she stops looking for her husband's love. Okay, there's a transition that's happened between she's now desiring the attachment and the love of her husband to a shift to there's a group coming, there's a bigger thing that's happening, people notice how happy I am, and wow, maybe now I may not have love, but honor, okay? Afterwards, she bore a daughter and called her Dinah. Then God remembered Rachel, and God listened to her and opened her womb and conceived and bore a son, and she said, God has taken away my reproach, and she called his name Joseph, which means may he add more. So this is Rachel who's gone on this journey of not being able to conceive herself, who after her first son comes into the world, instead of something around the lines of, oh my goodness, wow, the response is may he give me more. I want more. She ceases to be able to enjoy the miracle that has actually just taken place, right? May the Lord give me another son. Then we're going to jump to chapter 35, and it's three verses, and that's it. You did it. Chapter 35, 16, it says, Then they moved from Bethel. While they were there, some distance from Ephrath, Rachel began to give birth and had great difficulty. So she actually conceived again. And as she was having great difficulty in childbirth, the midwife said to her, Don't despair, for you're having another son. As she breathed her last, for she was dying, she named her son Benani, which means son of my trouble. And again, this is with her dying breath. It's worth noting that what the name is, is she dies cursing him. She dies cursing her son, okay, because it's about his destiny. So much so that, that her husband actually renamed him Benjamin, which means son of my right hand. Because to have someone go through life being named son of my trouble is literally, I don't even know the equivalent modern day, a bad word to name your kid, okay, that it had to be changed. So Rachel died and was buried on the way to Ephrath in Bethlehem. Over her tomb, Jacob set up a pillar, and to this day, that pillar marks Rachel's tomb. Okay, we did it. You read more of the Bible in one sitting than, you know, it's more than a Twitter, right, amount of Bible. So what does this story have to do with Thanksgiving? What does it have to do with manifestation? And do you have to explain to your children that are sitting in this room what it all meant? You know, maybe. (laughs) Sorry. Um... This story is actually meant to be read as a compare and a contrast between the two sisters, okay? It's a really cool story of, um, of God accommodating himself to people. So Drew would know who this is from. The theology of accommodation is Calvinism, something. It's the whole idea that God in his purity and his holiness and his sovereignty actually comes and meets us where we're at in the journey. So he comes and he meets Leah in her pain and he accommodates himself to her. Even Rachel, who never actually goes on the journey of of maturity, really, and gratefulness and thankfulness, he still opens her womb. He comes and accommodates himself to her pain and works in all of that. But when you compare the two sisters to each other, which I think is actually how we're supposed to read it, Um, there's something really profound that I think we can pick up from it. So the first is that both sisters are wounded by life, okay? Both sisters come with their wound. Now, Rachel may have been beautiful and wanted and loved and all of those things, but in an economy of reproduction, like reproduction was how you gathered um, honor, she was not able to reproduce, and so that was part of her pain. But she also wasn't really jealous of her sister, which is ironic because her sister had everything Um, she had everything that her sister wanted, right? Even when she was having children, she had everything and yet was still in competition. 
Whereas Leah's wound is that she was unwanted, unloved, and in economic debt to her husband, right? Who had just worked seven years for someone else and had to live with that awkward tension of being the one who was unloved and unwanted. So number two, both deal, both deal with their wounds by trying to rise above the wound and fight the wound, okay? So for Leah, she starts fighting her wound by having babies with the hope that her pain will be healed, right? Reuben was her misery. Simeon, Levi, may he attach to me. They didn't heal the wound, but that was her tactic in trying to attempt to get from her husband what she wanted, right? Even with Leah, the declaration over Leah, uh, Levi's life is, please, may my husband now attach to me. Whereas with Rachel, she fights her wound by using manipulation, like the mandrakes, you know, you can have them and I'll take this. She also um, fights the reality of her wound, right? Instead of being able to make peace with it, she fights it, right? She fights it by trying to bring in this, the servant um, to compare and to compete with her sister. So both Leah and Rachel fail to fix their wound, but they handle it differently, okay? So with Leah, something happened to her when she had Judah. By naming her child, now I will praise God, now I will praise him, she's actually demonstrating that there's been a shift in her perspective from the misery and the pain and the agony of being unwanted and unloved to there is a greater narrative and it's something bigger that's happening here. There's a perspective change that's actually so profound, it's hard to pick up when you're reading it because it happens between one sentence and another. But we're talking years could have passed between those, those two children. And the naming demonstrates something's happened with Leah. So instead of continuing to name her children along the theme of maybe God will see me in my misery, maybe my husband will see me, maybe my husband will love me, from that perspective on, the names of her children changed to happiness, reward, honor, praise, a group is coming. It's pretty amazing what happened with Leah. The, the obsession stops being about competing with her sister for the affection of a man to feeling seen by God and knowing that a massive narrative is happening and she's a part of it, right? Whereas with Rachel, Rachel's life stays in competition. She fails to, to actually make peace with her wound. It stays in competition, which is ironic because she had already won based on those metrics. She had won at the beginning, she was the winner, but it stayed in competition her whole life. Even that when she could actually carry her own children, not just using um, her servant, even in the time, the absolute miracle of God opening up her womb, which with the um, theology of accommodation, what's really cool is that people can read this story and say, oh, Rachel was being petty, so God closed her womb. That's not how the story reads. The story reads, Rachel was being petty and God saw her pain and he opened her womb. He didn't wait for her to mature. He didn't wait for her to get it right. He's not, he, you know, because she names her first son vindication, but God is not vindictive, right? We misunderstand his character and she misunderstood God's character, thinking, aha, I've been vindicated. No, God's not waiting and I think for some of us, there's many pains that we have, and there is this theology of God that he is vindictive, that it's like not until I get it perfect, get it right, get my life in order, will he come and meet me where I'm at? And it's like, that is not true, and the story of Rachel proves it. The sad thing about Rachel is that she couldn't even see it. She was so focused on the competition and the envy 
that she could not even see that God had done a miracle, right? So much so that the names continue, vindication, struggle, I need more, with the final curse. Her last breath in her life was to curse a son, which was all she had wanted, right? How many of us live our lives completely missing what God has done or what God is doing because we are so focused on the thing that we don't have or the thing that we want, right? We fail to transition because Leah and Rachel were actually in the same starting place for different reasons, but the same wound, same pain, failed to transition to a different perspective, right? And it stopped someone, you know, it never healed Leah's pain, like, we never read that Jacob one day woke up and was like, you are hot and I want you, right? It doesn't say she ever got affirmed by him. It doesn't say she ever, even when it comes to honor, right? Because if you read the story of Joseph with the Technicolor Dreamcoat, if you know the musical, it's still, the competition still continued on. Those kids were favored and the others weren't. Leah never got the satisfaction of feeling wanted and loved and known by her husband, but it stopped mattering, isn't that crazy? It stopped mattering. And so for Rachel, her dying breath declared that she, although she had it all, it wasn't enough. And I'm going to wrap up in like three. So if you want to get communion ready, that's the sign. Organized religion, guys. Transitions that are like seamless. <laughs> the really cool thing about the shift that happened between um, for, for Leah around the naming of Judah is that there's something profound that happens when our perspective change and God meets us in our pain and he heals our pain, but in a way that is divine and is his. Because when you think about it, out of Judah's life, now I will praise him, came the tribe of Judah. And out of the tribe of Judah, and I get goosebumps every time I think about it, came the lion of Judah, who is Jesus, who wants to heal you in your pain meet you in your pain. He accommodates himself to where we are in our lives, in our struggle, needing that vindication, the fight, the burdens, all of these things. And there is an opportunity for all of us to see that he, yeah, profound music, right? <laughs> now you got goosebumps. There's an opportunity for all of us to see, <laughs> I know, there's an opportunity for all of us to see that God is on high. He is on his throne. He remains. He is steadfast. He is sure. He is able. He sees you and he knows you and that maybe the pain of whatever life has dealt you can't actually be fixed because it's sin in a broken world and it's the cards that we've been dealt just like Leah can't become unugly. There's no Botox, filler, plastic surgery. None of that exists then. Right? She can't even fix it in her own way, which we all do in our culture. We take our pain and we try to fix it in our way. Is that if we can have a spiritual maturing moment, a transition where God can say, I wish we knew what, what happened with Leah between those two kids. Because something happened. And it wasn't a manifestation vision board. But it was the perspective changed. She opened her eyes up to, what if God sees me? What if he hears me? What if he loves me? What if he knows me? What if he actually is gonna do something with my life despite the cards I've been dealt with and the competition that I have with my sister and the grueling pain of every single day being unwanted, unloved, and a debt? Right? Isn't that cool? And from that, Judah, the tribe of Judah, the lion of Judah, Jesus. Right? 
God uses Leah's acceptance of her pain to bring forth healing for the whole world. Rachel never makes peace with her wound, and yet God is still compassionate on her, and he still meets her. He doesn't, he's not vindictive and abusive and mean and cruel. But I wonder if there's things in our lives that God has actually accommodated himself to us, but our perspective is so in the weeds that we've yet to actually go, my God, he did it for me. He actually did do this for me. But I've been concentrating on what I thought the outcome would look like that I completely missed the picture. He's compassionate on Rachel, and he blesses Rachel, and he does a miracle for Rachel, but she never, ever could enjoy it. She dies cursing the miracle. What? Isn't that crazy? We do this. We, we do this. We, we live our lives cursing the very miracle that God has done because our perspective is off and we're looking for the wrong thing. Leah went on a spiritual journey of changing her perspective. Our wounds and our pain are inevitable because we are broken and in a broken world because of sin, and yet God meets us in our pain. That doesn't mean he wants you to stay in your pain. Do you think that God gave Rachel those four boys, two of which she actually got to carry herself with the hopes that she would die still in pain and misery and struggling? No, right? He will meet us where we're at, but maybe we need to open our eyes up to what he's already done and what he's still actively doing. A happy life is not one that's void of, void of pain, but it's one that's transformed by the one who loves you, and that is Jesus, right? There's an old hymn that says, turn your eyes upon Jesus, look full in his wonderful face, and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. And that, I think, is an opportunity for us on a Thanksgiving Sunday to say, I need a Judah kind of transformation. Isn't it cool that praise does break something? I don't know if you've ever experienced that. You're in the thick of it and someone turns on worship or you're in a room like this and people start worshiping and you start feeling the shift happening. That is the manifesting vision board for us that is way more powerful than pseudoscience fairies. right? If while we praise, we turn our eyes on Jesus, we actually can experience a spiritual maturity and a growth and a transformation that allows us to live in the miracle, see the miracle, praise him, maybe still have the pain, but stop fighting the pain and start looking forward to his kingdom come and his will be done, right? So cool.